Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. In this series of podcasts, our experts discuss select articles from the latest version of Obesity Pillars, an open-access, online-only journal published by the OMA, committed to providing evidence-based research for healthcare clinicians in the field of obesity medicine. In this episode, OMA Chief Science Officer Dr. Harold Bays interviews Carly Burridge, PA. Ms. Burridge is Chair of the Membership Committee of the OMA, President of the PAs in Obesity Medicine, and lead author of today's article titled, Nutrition and Physical Activity, aimed at supporting providers who wish to create or improve an obesity management program. Topics include effective documentation, EMRs and energy expenditure, as well as body composition. And today, our experts discuss effective documentation, EMRs, and energy expenditure. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine. Welcome. My name is Dr. Harold Bays, Medical Director and President of the Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center located in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also Chief Science Officer of the Obesity Medicine Association, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of Obesity Pillars. Uh, we're fortunate uh, today to have with us um, Carly Burridge. Carly, why don't you tell the people who you are and what you do? Well, hey, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Carly Burridge. I'm a PA and a fellow of the Obesity Medicine Association. And I'm the current chair of the membership committee at OMA, and I'm the president of PAs in Obesity Medicine. And I work clinically as an obesity specialist PA at Onara Health, and I own my own company called Gaining Health, which I uh, provide resources and support for providers who want to start an obesity management program, including a book I wrote on the topic of obesity program development. And Harold, I just want to start out by saying that, you know, I truly believe that we can revolutionize and transform healthcare by practicing evidence-based, compassionate obesity medicine using the pillars of obesity treatment. And so that's why I'm so excited about the Obesity Pillars Journal and the clinical practice statements, because it really allows us to give great guidance to providers so that they can effectively manage obesity and individualize care for their patients. Well, thank you, Carly. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the obesity pillars um, because that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, you were first author of the clinical practice statement uh, put out by the Obesity Medicine Association, and it covered the critically important topics of uh, taking a medical history, physical exam, what's important with regard to laboratory, body composition, and energy expenditure. Why did you and your co-authors feel it was important to list examples of relevant history, physical exam and laboratory, uh, specifically as it pertains to persons with the obesity. Yeah, you know, we all know that obesity is a complex multifactorial disease. There's so many different factors that go into why and when a person may or may not develop obesity. And so it's so important that if we want to help manage uh, obesity effectively for each individual person, that we have to understand what's going on uh, in that person. So I often talk about these different puzzle pieces that we have to kind of put together to create an individualized treatment plan for our patients. So that's really what we were able to do with this clinical practice statement is really put together, uh, first and foremost, the assessment. So taking a really thorough history uh, for each patient. 
And that's going to involve a lot of these different factors, right? So we want to understand uh, their medical history, their family history. We want to understand their nutritional history as far as uh, what, they, what they're eating, the quality and quantity of the food, the timing of the food. We want to understand their physical activity history and their sedentary behaviors. Uh, we want to understand the different stressors that they may have in their life. Again, every person has a different story, and some people may have history of trauma, or some people may have, you know, current stressors that are going on that are affecting uh, their weight. Things like sleep and um, sleep deprivation and potentially also sleep disorders play an important role. Things like weight-promoting medications can play a role in the development of obesity. And we know that genetics and epigenetics play an important role, as well as social determinants of health. So there are so many different factors that can play into whether a person develops obesity or not. So this clinical practice statement really helps providers get some really good guidance on the types of questions we need to be asking our patients and what we need to be assessing uh, for our patients uh, that have um, obesity or pre-obesity. So, so just, just so everybody's clear on this, this these, these clinical practice statements that are out there in this journal, Obesity Pillars, uh, how, how much does it cost? How much would it cost a person uh, who wants to get this information, who has all these things are listed? I mean, you just mentioned just a very small amount of the wealth of information that's uh, that's provided in this comprehensive clinical practice statement. I mean, how much would that cost the person? How much would it set them back to get this information? Well, the great thing about the Obesity Pillars Journal is that it's open access. So it doesn't cost anybody anything. Anybody can have access to this, which is so great because we know that obesity management is not covered uh, for the most part in a lot of the medical training that people receive. And so this is a free um, resource that they can go to so that they can really start to assess patients and then work towards treatment. And so part of that assessment is taking a thorough history. But another part of that is taking a thorough obesity-specific uh, review of systems and doing a physical exam where we're looking for uh, potential complications that a person may have already developed as a result of their obesity, and also doing laboratory studies and other studies to figure out, one, are there other causes, potential causes of their obesity that we could be treating? And also, are there certain medical conditions that they have already developed or that they already have that are going to play a role in their treatment plan? So for example, if somebody has a history of migraines or a history of diabetes, that could potentially affect the treatment plan that we put together for them. Or they might have medical conditions uh, that would affect treatment because it might be a contraindication for certain treatments. Um, and also when we're talking about nutrition, when we're looking at these different laboratory studies, that can help guide our nutrition plan and our physical activity plan. So all of these things are really crucial when we are developing an individualized treatment plan, plan for patients. And so many providers haven't been taught these things in their medical training. So they can access the clinical practice statement and get all of this information and guidance on you know, which labs to order, what types of signs and symptoms to look for in the review of systems and physical exam, and how they can really individualize a treatment plan based on that for their patients with obesity. And again, I, I hate to yeah. keep wanting to clarify things, but I want to make sure that everybody's uh, totally up to speed on exactly what these clinical practices uh, statements are. Look, folks, th 
you know, these are peer these are peer review journal articles, right? They 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 undergo peer review, and and truth be told, uh, these clinical practice statements were derived from the obesity algorithm, which were uh, you know which was a document put out by the Obesity Medicine Association that underwent yearly review, many times by multiple different types of authors who had multiple different types of practice. So it's a you know, all of this information, I would say, is reflective of a of a multidisciplinary uh, approach, and and that's the reason I think that you could you could say that it's it's going to be re reasonably comprehensive and covering all the topics that you mentioned, and and just so everybody's above board. I mean, look, there were even times there were disagreements, right? We weren't always in agreement as to which particular which particular uh, uh, say blood test, for example are critically important and which ones were ones that were should be individualized to the patient. For example, I'm an endocrinologist. Uh, I don't routinely do fasting insulin levels on every patient with obesity, but I know you, uh, you know, we've had this conversation. Uh, you feel differently about it, but we were able to figure out a way to reflect both of their, both of those types of viewpoints, right? So, so I guess one of the real excitements to me about what you've done here, being lead author of this of this article, is to take these divergent points of view and put it in a way that you know, I think makes sense for, for everybody. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think first of all, we have to give credit to all of the people who have worked on this because this wasn't a document that just came about. Like you mentioned, this comes from years and years of people working on the obesity algorithm with the OMA. So it's all of those authors who have contributed in the past to the algorithm. Um, so, you know, it certainly has been a team effort and it's been something that's uh, accumulation of all of this information over all these years. And it's all evidence-based information as well. So it's evidence-based, it's backed by research and also um, clinical experience of obesity medicine providers who have contributed to the algorithm. So certainly this is something where a lot of people deserve credit for this clinical practice statement. And like you said, you know, we're not all going to practice obesity medicine exactly the same way. And this is not intended to tell people how to practice obesity medicine. It's intended to give an evidence-based guideline, right? And so each provider can still choose, of course, um, how, how they're gonna individualize treatment for their patients uh, and certainly at times there can be disagreements about which labs every provider might order for their patients. And we're all going to have our, our own personal differences when it comes to that. But I think this just gives such a great comprehensive overview. Um, it's so helpful for people to have guidance when they're, you know, looking to treat patients with obesity and they want it to be evidence-based first and foremost, they want it to be effective. And so this is just a great document that providers can turn to, to give them some good guidance on where to start and what types of things they might want to consider as they're looking to create an individualized treatment plan for their patients. Within um, this document itself, it says exactly what you just said there, is it explicitly says uh, this is not intended to tell people how to practice medicine. And that what really matters is the patient-centered approach. So for any of you folks out there that when you hear the word guideline, it just, oh, you know, the hair stands up on the you know, back of your neck or whatever, um, uh, that's not what this is. We're not here to tell people how to do things or, or what to do or what, what they must do or whatever. We don't, 
We don't have the word must anywhere, anywhere in the document. As you said, it's intended to be a resource and people can pick and choose uh, which aspects that they believe is gonna be most beneficial for their patients. And at least with regard to this topic that we're talking about, I mean, Carly, what, what do you think about the utility of all this information if, if people wanna alter their, their electronic medical record templates, like their intakes and such? I mean, how useful is that to have all these things available that they can, uh, you know, they can edit uh, what uh, what might already be available on some of the you know the EMRs uh, and and specifically target target it uh, to uh, patients with obesity. Yeah, I think it's so helpful, right? You can create um, labs and stuff like lab orders and, and put that into your EMR system and things that you can automate to make it easier for you. Also, like patient intake forms. When we're talking about this assessment, one feedback that I often get is, wow, that's a lot of information. That's a lot of assessment to get from a patient. You know, it must take forever to get this type of an assessment. But if you have, if you know the questions that you want to ask, you have the components of the assessment, like the nutrition assessment, physical activity assessment, then you can create um, ways to do that, like forms or intake forms or, or questions that you put into your EMR system that you routinely ask your patients to really give structure to that visit so that you know when patients are coming in that you're addressing a lot of these super important factors that need to be addressed. And maybe you don't do it all in one visit. That's another thing I'd like to point out too, is we don't have to do all of this assessment in one visit, right? You might uh, assess somebody's weight history in one visit, and uh, maybe you assess their nutrition in, in the follow-up visit or their physical activity. But at least, you know, having this type of guidance to let you know what types of questions to ask, what type of information is important to gather um, for patients with obesity, I think is very, very helpful. And again, something that most providers do not receive in their standard medical training. And, and, I, and I would just add, uh, having a resource, a free resource that you can go to and find, you know, a document thoughtful people have gathered over a period of years and said, here's what we think are at least some of the essentials. It may not be everything that's applicable to an individual practice, but it's a lot of it. You can get it for free. And I'll tell you the other part I found um, especially rewarding is the fact that you tackled uh, energy expenditure. I mean, I know a lot of times people only know about energy expenditure when they're preparing for the American Board of Obesity Medicine, but um, but look, it can be applicable to to a clinical practice. So tell us above and beyond maybe just preparing for board exams and such. Why why did you feel like it was important to to have a a just a very practical discussion of evaluation of energy expenditure? Yeah, well, we know that ex energy expenditure plays a very important role in the development of obesity, right? So it's important that we understand first and foremost what we're talking about when we're saying things like energy expenditure. I think a lot of times we hear about it in the lay people talk about somebody having fast metabolism or slow metabolism. And what does that really mean? What are we talking about when we're talking about this metabolism, right? So I think it's important first and foremost for providers to understand what energy expenditure is, what the different components of energy expenditure are, right? So we're talking about things like resting metabolic rate, which is going to make up on average about 70% of somebody's total energy expenditure. Then we're talking about things like uh, physical activity, which includes both structured and unstructured physical activity, like non-exercise, 
activity thermogenesis. So those activities of daily living, right? And that makes up on average about 20% of energy expenditure, but it's the component that we can affect change in the most, right? So it's super important that we talk about that. Excuse me, just for the folks, just so we get this, that's what's called NEAT, right? That's the acronym, right. NEAT. Uh, uh, Non-energy right. activity thermogenesis, right? It's the, it's the fidgeting. It's the, it's the, uh, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevators. It's the not holding on to the handles when you walk on the treadmill. It's, it's those types of things. And, and, and Carly, I got to tell you, I mean, the, the data suggests that that is the widest variance of energy expenditure among people of, of similar size and such as this. It isn't so much maybe the, the physical activity, although that's certainly true for some individuals, but among most people, it's that need, right? It's the other stuff. Yeah. And we live in a society where over the last, especially the last 50 years, we've had so many advances on how to make things more efficient, right? How can we expend less energy doing things? So things like, you know, driving cars, you know, transportation. Um, even things like washing machines and, you know, all of these advances that we've had have all made us more efficient, uh, with our time. But it also means that we're doing a lot less physical activity and just we're moving less throughout the day, even for things like transportation and things like that. Um, elevators, escalators, you mentioned that we can take the stairs instead. So there's so many different things that we can talk about with our patients. Uh, that we can increase that non-exercise activity. And, and the difference between individuals for the non-exercise activity, as you pointed out, can be huge, can be 500 calories or more a day, right? And that's unstructured physical activity, just things that people are doing throughout the day. And so that's often a great place to start with patients is to talk about how they can increase their, their needs, their non-exercise activity, thermogenesis by parking their car farther away, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, by uh, using the restroom that's furthest away, you know, uh, those types of things um, are very important. And so that's all part of energy expenditure. And so I think it's important that we understand that this is an important role in the development and treatment of obesity. And also that we learn how to measure things like resting energy expenditure, because that can also play a role. And, you know, we have some patients who, who perhaps feel like, oh, you know, I, I must just have a slow metabolism. That must be what's causing all of this. And let's assess that. Maybe they do. For some people, they actually do have a lower than expected resting energy expenditure. And that can happen for several reasons. You know, one might just be if somebody's had significant weight loss in the past, especially if they lost a lot of muscle mass that can contribute to having a lowered resting energy expenditure. So if we see that in a patient, that that needs to be an important part of the treatment plan, right? We need to address that. So with the, that patient, we'd want to focus on things like doing resistance training, building up their muscle mass, making sure they're getting sufficient protein, right? So those would all be important components of the treatment plan for that patient. Um, if somebody doesn't have, well, most patients don't have a slowed metabolism or a low resting metabolic rate. And so that's also good for them to know, you know, to say that, you know, this is your resting metabolic rate and it's actually normal, sometimes even above normal. So let's look at some of these other components, again, other pieces of the puzzle that might be contributing to their obesity instead. And we can also measure it over time because we know that there can be in some patients a metabolic adaptation to weight loss. So that's something else that we can track and, again, make sure that we're addressing things like resistance training, 
uh, increasing muscle mass if possible, and at least not losing too much muscle mass and ensuring a sufficient protein intake for those patients. And look, that is, that is so hard. As you know, we do a lot of um, uh, dual x-ray absorptiometry, um, body composition analysis we're going to talk about here in just a second um, on everybody from, from patients with obesity to uh, elite athletes and such. And uh, whenever people yeah. lose weight, I mean, 80% of the time, they're going to be losing muscle mass too. And it's just really, we do have the occasional patient, but it's very rare, who can actually increase uh, muscle mass with weight loss. But that takes an extraordinary amount of effort. And even, even among uh, uh, elite athletes, it's more typical that they're going to lose muscle uh, uh, and fat. And, and, and the other thing that happens is... You know, I'm partial to this whole efficiency, inefficiency thing. I want to have T-shirts that say, be inefficient. Uh, I think that if I had to pick two words to solve the obesity crisis, it would be be inefficient. Uh, eat foods that are inefficiently absorbed from the gastrointestinal tract, not ultra-processed foods. Uh, be inefficient. Park away from the buildings as opposed to right next to the building. Be inefficient. Uh, take the stairs. Don't take the elevators. Don't take the escalators. Uh, be inefficient. Uh, go to the park. Don't just sit at home on your on the on the video and play sports there. Uh, you know, go to a park. Walk to a park. Like you said, go go grocery shopping. Well, there's just so so many ways of of how being inefficient is is actually beneficial to patients. And and if I had to pick the one that I I don't think people recognize is whenever a person loses weight, um, what happens is the muscles become more e become more efficient, which means uh, now after they've lost the weight for the same amount of um, of exercise, physical exercise, they're actually burning off less calories, which makes things even you know more tough for weight reduction. So, so in so in summary, I guess I would I would agree with this um, notion of uh, emphasizing inefficiency to combat all these, in, these efficient things that have happened that I think have largely contributed to the obesity epidemic. First off, you know, congratulations and such um, uh, for being the lead author on this. And do you have any final words of wisdom to the folks out there? You know, I just really, I'm so excited that this is out there. That's a free resource because I just, like I said at the beginning, I really feel like we can transform and revolutionize the way we practice medicine. If we focus on things like treating obesity first, treating it comprehensively with compassion, with empathy, and with evidence-based medicine, and this clinical practice statement is just another tool in the toolbox that providers can use to do that, to really help their patients and to get to the root cause of what causes over 236 other medical conditions that most providers are spending the vast majority of their time treating. So when we, when we get to the root cause, when we treat the obesity, everything else gets better. And we can stop putting band-aids on all these complications of, obes of obesity and really get to the root cause. So I think that's so exciting. I hope a lot of providers embrace this and embrace obesity medicine and start really using it in their clinical practice. And um, yeah, so that's what I'd really like to finish with. And if anybody wants to reach out to me or has further questions, you know, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or Facebook at My Gaining Health. You can check out my website, gaininghealth.com, or you can always email me at carly at gaininghealth.com. Okay, well, Carly, 
Thank you so much. Hope, you so much. Uh, hopefully people will take uh, advantage of the uh, opportunities and resources that we've talked about here. And uh, I guess I'll conclude by saying my name is uh, Dr. Harold Bays again, uh, medical director of the Elmark Research Center located here in Louisville, Kentucky. And you've been listening to Obesity, a Disease. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity, a Disease. For more information about obesity medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org backslash podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.